0: Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Let us give attention as we listen to God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him uh, something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, God, that now as we give attention to the things that you have written to us, that, you know, this is not just a part of the service where a man stands up and shares his ideas. But, Lord, we are hearing the words of the living God. And we pray for your spirit to bring those words to bear uh, heavily upon our hearts and our lives. Lord, that we would have ears to hear, to receive them by faith. That we have the scales removed from our eyes and we would receive these things. Lord, not only uh, seeking that these things would be applied in our hearts and our lives, but Lord, also rejoicing that we are the recipients of the words of life. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, as I said, our focus is upon uh, the persecuted church around the world. And think about our brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith. And as we do so this morning, I want us to look at Romans 12 and and just a a picture of overcoming faith. What does a faith look like that that overcomes? Uh, One of the things that I have done for years is to pray for myself, especially as I see oftentimes the weakness of my faith. I pray, Lord, if the day comes that I have to suffer for my faith, may I stand firm. May, Lord, I not, not, not only not deny your name, but may I proclaim your name uh, to your glory and your honor. And I pray that not only for myself, I pray for my family, but I also pray for whatever church I'm in. And so that means I'm praying this for you and for your families as well that we might stand firm and we might glorify the Lord. So this morning, as we look at Romans 12, I want us to consider several things about a faith that overcomes or a faith that endures. And so the first thing I want us to see is the source of an overcoming faith. The source of an overcoming faith. And of course, the source of an overcoming faith is, is God's mercies. Okay. Uh, last week, I shared a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that went like this. It says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against accusations. And this is true before we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something in us that just tells us we're not as that bad. And even as we become believers, oftentimes there is that whisper of that that part of the flesh that says, You're not so bad okay and uh and so that's why people don't see themselves as badly as they really are but part of the gospel brothers and sisters part of the work of the holy spirit in our hearts is for the holy spirit to show us oh no you are that bad actually you're probably worse than what most people know and uh, so part of the gospel is opening our eyes to be able to see the wickedness of our own hearts and, and once we see the deep darkness of our hearts, we are overwhelmed to what lengths that God will go to to save us from our rebellion against Him and not at all treating us as we deserve. He gives us mercies, brothers and sisters. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. And, and one of the things, you know, in our midweek study of this book Gentle and Lowly, that uh, one of the things that this study has shown me is really the heart of God behind the actions of God. When people ask me about the study that we're doing, and I tell them, I said, that's how I would describe it. I've, I've known of all of these things that God has done. I've gone to seminary, I've studied theology, and I've seen all this. And, you know, uh, but now I think I'm seeing the heart of God behind all of these things. I, I, I think it's too easy for us to think of our salvation as the result of a cold and calculated plan of god well he elected us from before the foundations of the earth and you know that sounds glorious but then when you hear that he loves us when you see his compassion uh that that uh, that he seeks to set us free from sin and he goes to such lengths to set us free as hostages to sin and the the torment that sin causes our lives And He pursues us to set us free that we might understand His wonderful grace. When you see that He yearns for us, brothers and sisters, with a love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness that we might be walking through, even at this time, it's just wonderful to see. When you see that the love that He has for us is... is, It takes the best love that we know here on this earth... And it makes it appear just like a whisper. It just makes it appear like it's the, the, the tiniest little thing when you see the love that God has for his people. And it is this love, this mercy, which includes the compassion that God displays concerning our misfortune, especially concerning sin. And, and that is the source of this overcoming faith. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Because you have received those mercies. You have received that salvation that God has given to you. You have seen his great love for you. You have experienced that. Now to understand God's mercy. Consider how Paul describes that mercy. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Another very familiar passage. Ephesians 2. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian church about God's grace. He says, but God being what? Rich. Grace. God doesn't just show us grace. He is rich in grace. He gives us gifts that are beyond our comprehension in terms of the way that that He treats us. And it says, because of His great love with which He loved us. None of us understands that kind of love here upon this earth. It is the love that goes beyond anything that we ever experienced. Um, I like the illustration that Dane Ortlund uses. He says, God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life causes his fortune to grow greater, not less. And see, we can't comprehend that because when we spend something, we get rid of it, we have less. But with God, that's not the case. And you might say, how can that, how can that be? Well, the reason is because mercy is who he is. If, if mercy was something that God simply had, then he could spend part of it. And then he would have less. But it is part of his character. Now, it's not the totality of the character of God. God is more than simply uh, mercy, and Orland points that out. But that is who he is. And so he, uh, uh, Paul describes God's wonderful mercies. As a matter of fact, uh, he's been describing it for 11 chapters. And so it's sort of too bad we're doing a one-off on Romans 12 when we don't get the advantage of Romans 1 through 11. Uh, but uh, Paul is just sharing these, these riches of God's mercy. And he becomes so overwhelmed by them that as he's writing to these brothers and sisters... He says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul is just overwhelmed with the wonderful mercies of God. He is, he is enraptured by God's great mercies. And so he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, he's saying here that we are to bring, we are to present, we are to offer our bodies as a sacrifice to God. But it's interesting, it's a sacrifice that's still living. You know, kids, when we think of sacrificing something, we think of putting it to death. But that's not what he says here. It's to be an active pursuit. It's, it's to be an ongoing sacrifice. It's to be an active pursuit as long as we live. That we are every day bringing our bodies, our lives to the Lord to offer them to him. It's, it's the idea of presenting ourselves as an instrument of righteousness. Lord, use me. Do with me what you want of glorifying God through our bodies by leading an upright life. And also part of that idea of offering our bodies to him is is forsaking the dominion of sin over our lives, those things that that tempt us to to sin because we have been brought from death to life. Now Paul uses this language in Romans 6. Turn back to Romans 6, uh, verse 13 He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And then skip down to verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life. And, and that's why, as Christ's disciples, we must choose daily to die to the things we selfishly want to do, and instead to do what Christ wants. Um, let me, if I could, read to you Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke nine, twenty-three, 23. And, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself for whoever is ashamed of me and of my word of him will the son of man be ashamed and when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels and so as, as living sacrifices, we die in order for Christ to live in and through us. For us not to do the things we want, but to see the work and the power of the Holy Spirit at, at work in us. I mean, what does Galatians say? I have been crucified with Christ, right? It, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ living in and through us means many things, one of which is embracing that position of a servant, of giving our our lives to him. Jesus willingly gave up his glory to take the form of a servant. We read that in Philippians 2. And so we willingly lay aside what we want, our agendas, our priorities, our dreams, all of the things that we want To present our bodies or our lives to God for him to do whatever he wants. Now, you know, I get to spend a lot more time with this text than you guys do. You get to, you know, listen to it for 40 minutes maybe. But I get to spend all week with it. And one of the things I think that struck me as I was reading over Romans 12 and and studying these things is I realized that I think my view of Romans 12.1 has become very Americanized. And and when I thought about this passage, I often asked myself, God, what do you want me to give up? What do you want me to give up? But that's not really the perspective that this passage gives us. You know, I mean, I was thinking of it as if a sacrifice is something that we give, it's something that we do, rather than something we are. That's who we are. We are that sacrifice that we present to God. You know, in the same way that Christ was... The high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. We are that sacrifice before God. The reality is, uh, we, as, as uh, we read of the lives of Christians in other parts of the world, we see that more clearly. That they saw themselves as sacrifice to give to God to do whatever he wants. And I read this week of uh, armed Hindu extremists who were was approaching, and I'm probably not going to get these names right, but Kandi, I think is the name of the man, but they were approaching Kandi's home in India, and they were angry that he would not renounce his faith. And and so uh, as he knew that these extremists were coming for him, Kandi told his wife, he says, no matter what happens to me, you should not give up your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Kandi and Bindi continued living for Christ and praying and trusting him every day. Uh, and, but... Uh, the mobs continued to to harass them. And finally, Khandi was killed by these uh, Hindu extremists. And so Bindi's father came to her and said, you need to to give up following this Jesus so that it doesn't cost you your life. And she said to her father, she said, father, she goes, "I, I just think of something that my husband told me one time. I will live for Jesus or I will die for Jesus, but I will never turn back from Jesus. And so she held her faith. Those who have died to self are willing to live for Christ no matter what the cost. And this willingness to die for Christ comes from our union with Christ, of of who we are in Christ. We are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So much so that we see this whole idea of death and resurrection as sort of the pattern of the Christian life, willing to give up our desires to serve Christ, to, to die, But also living as heavenly children, even while we're here upon this earth, living in the resurrection that we will one day experience. You see, too often, I think, as Christians, we think only of Jesus' death in terms of a substitutionary death. In other words, that's to say that Christ died so that we wouldn't have to die. And I think that's oftentimes where we just sort of zero in on in terms of his death, and we focus upon that. So we think, well, Christ had to suffer so I could have it easier in my life but the Bible presents the death of Christ not only for us but the Bible talks about his death in us as well the cross is not only the hope of our redemption but also the pattern of our lives as well Uh, it's, it's the power of the resurrection that is work in us as well as the cross and so here Paul describes this living sacrifice as holy, acceptable well pleasing to God He is is focusing on the fact that Jesus was the blameless, unblemished sacrifice. And he's saying that we too, as those who have been made blameless and unblemished in Christ, are to offer uh, our justified and sanctified selves as a sacrifice pleasing to God. I trust that you see as you, you are reading this, that Paul is drawing you to an infinitely higher plane. You know he's, he's wanting you to see the glory of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of someone who has such faith in Jesus Christ. We, we are to offer up as a sacrifice not that which is worthy of death, not, not our sin, but rather uh, what you are to offer up is precisely that which is now worthy of life. That in which the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. You are to offer up what is good in you, the very good that has been created in you by God himself, okay? Uh, you are not to, to hoard it like some treasured possession that you will never let out of your grasp. And what I mean by that is this. You know, um, maybe for those that have grown up in the church, this is a little harder to see. But for those that come to faith in Christ at a much later date, maybe never growing up in the church, there's a radical change in their life oftentimes a radical change. They they see themselves living in the life of of sin doing what they want to do. You know, they may not be consider themselves quote unquote bad people or anything, but still God has not been in control of their life. They have. And they have done what they wanted, but when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a radical shift. And they see that the things that Christ does in them makes their life so much different and and they rejoice in that. And and the point that I I'm wanting to make here is is that as Christ works in us, whether it is growing up not being in the church and seeing this radical change, or whether it's having grown up in the church and maybe seeing more a gradual change, but a change nonetheless, that that's not just to make our lives better. God didn't come just to make our lives easier or better or more fulfilling, but He has given us these lives that we might give our lives away for others. And I wonder if sometimes in our minds, the Christian life, that is sanctification, is seen as a lifelong self-improvement project of becoming better. We would use the term becoming more like Jesus Christ, where God blesses us with a new nature in order to make us better, mature, and more holy. So, so we hang on to that life Christ gives us, conserving it for ourselves, using it for ourselves, then seeing it as a life to give away and sacrifice. But we are to give our lives away as Christ gave His life for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, be like God. Do as He does. Okay, As beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He gave us his life that we might walk in him. Now, did Christ offer his life for the purpose of his own self-improvement? No, not at all. God forbid. He offered himself to God for us. And that's the nature of the Christian life. We are to offer ourselves for others. And, And don't you see, that's precisely where the Spirit of God leads us in this chapter in Romans 12. He he immediately, look down at verses 3 through 8. You know, after he talks about this whole idea of this living sacrifice and offering, presenting this to God, then he immediately begins telling us about the gifts that we have, the spiritual gifts, and how we are to use them for the good of the body of Christ. We give them to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I am yours, use those so that it might benefit others. And then look down at verses 9 through 21. Then he paints this, Beautiful picture of, of selfless serving. Even in relation to a world that is hostile to us, there is that sense of, of giving, of offering of ourselves to God, that sacrifice. And so in the Christian life, you, you must not think of how well you were doing in your walk with the Lord. Think about how well others are doing and what you might do to, to serve them. And so being a living sacrifice as we see in Romans 12, is our spiritual worship, okay? Uh, Some translations say reasonable service, and that word could be translated either way, Uh, worship, service of God. So so this offering of your bodies is your spiritual service of worship. That's the idea behind it. You You are serving the Lord, you are worshiping Him. We oftentimes think of worship as this, right? What we do here on Sunday morning between this hour and that hour, or maybe we think of it in terms of our family worship, or maybe we think of it in terms of our personal worship with the Lord, and all those things are parts or components of worship, but he wants us to see that the worship that he calls us to is a twenty four seven worship it is that's our lifestyle is worship to the Lord and I was thinking about that this week and just the pictures that we have in the book of Revelation. Of the worship that is going on of God now. And isn't it continual? You know, aren't, aren't the, the elders falling down before the throne? Casting their crowns, worshiping the Lord. Singing, Hosanna, praise the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. And they are worshiping and worshiping and worshiping. Because our God is worthy to be worshiped continually. And as believers, that's how we do that in our lives. We worship Him continually. It's a, a whole life worship. It is all of life worship. Our spiritual worship is expressed as reasonable service is to daily live our lives for God's purposes because of his redemption. And, and the only way that's going to happen, that we're going to see that sense of offering our bodies is uh, as we transform, our, as we see our minds transformed. Look at verse 2. Um, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. The Christian life flows from that renewed inner man. Okay, that's where it comes from. Uh, Not... From the advice of a chaotic culture around us, I see so many Christians trying to listen to all the different voices and navigate all the things that are being said out of the culture, and trying to pick out those things that are true. How am I supposed to parent? What's my work ethic supposed to be like? How am I supposed to deal with my finances? You know, what what priorities am I supposed to have in life? And they're listening to all these voices, and they're trying to sort of assimilate some kind of worldview out of that that will help them navigate this world. And yet, the Bible tells us that the Christian life flows from a renewed inner man. It flows within us as the Word of God works in us. See, as Christians, we've been made new creatures in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. His grace is sort of a uh, uh, metamorphosis, uh, making us totally new, which includes the transforming of our thinking. As we become Christians... Then we begin to see things differently. We're under the, uh, the Holy Spirit, gives us a recreated mind and a heart, and under the control and influence of the Word of God. And, and the Holy Spirit grounds us in, in an eternal perspective, not not just thinking about this world, but as Paul says in Colossians three one, uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, and if we are united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. We have been raised with him. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so we live in a world where it's increasingly common for Christians to think that their particular opinions about God uh, matter and they're just equal with God's word. That their opinions about God matters maybe sometimes more than what God's word uh, matters. Ligon Duncan tells the story of a friend of his, Mark Dever. Mark uh, is a Reformed Baptist preacher and he was teaching at, he was doing a seminar actually, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this is before Al Mohler got there. So the seminary was had still was going in a more liberal bent. And uh, Mark goes, and he is a Bible-believing preacher, believe me. If you get a chance to hear Mark Dever, listen to him. But Mark's, you know, making an assertion from Scripture about God, and a student uh, in the class sort of interrupts him and says, uh, excuse me, Mark, he says, I, I like to think of God as wise, not as meddling, uh, as compassionate, not, not overpowering. Uh, I, I like to think of God as resourceful, but not interrupting. That's that's how I like to think about God. Mark Dever didn't miss a beat. He's a sharp guy. He looks at me and says, Well, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. But we're here to learn what God says about himself and his word. Okay, brothers and sisters, that's what we need. Okay, we need to hear what God says in his word, not what we think. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon even to run into Christians all the time that, that say that. That. They don't like what the Bible says about God, so they come up with some improved version. And I think oftentimes, I'll just be honest with you, I think sometimes those Christians, they just don't spend time with God's Word. And so they just sort of take the things maybe they have heard from God's Word with the things they hear from the culture, and they form their own view of God. But the Bible must be the force which works in the transforming and renewal in our deepest inner being. That inner mind must be subdued and recreated by the word of God. And that's why it's so important, brothers and sisters, for us to be in his word, not only on the Lord's day and with our families, but just even privately as well each day to meditate upon it. And Paul says, and he tells us why this is so important. He says, so that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul knows that minds which have been transformed by the renewing work of God's Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God will be able to discern what they ought to do. That's the only way. You can't do the will of God if you don't know the will of God, right? You can't do the will of God if you don't know the will of God. And you can't make a discerning choice if you don't know the truth of God. And so the renewed mind, according to God's word, is a mind that's able to dis- discern in a world that needs discernment. And brothers and sisters, our world definitely needs that discernment. And so that's, that's the source of an overcoming faith. And now you're very concerned about the time because you're thinking, wow, that was his first point? <laughs> well, we're not going to be able to go through the rest of Romans 12 in that much depth, okay? So we're going to sort of raise up and go over some things. A little bit more but I want us to see the second thing is the evidence of an overcoming faith and verses 3 through 20 Paul immediately begins telling us about the gifts that we have and how we are to use them for the good of his body and then as I said in in verses 9 through 21 then he begins to paint this beautiful picture of a self-serving and just just look at your scriptures just a second okay just just imagine what the life of a Christian that would exhibit these things would look like. Imagine what this looks like as the Spirit of God works in your own heart. A, a, a person who shows genuine love. Uh, sincere love. Uh, not play-acting. okay, not, not a hypocritical love. Not someone who says that they love. But someone who genuinely loves. Someone who holds fast to that which is good. That shows honor. Honor to, to other people. Who is fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, generous and hospitable, opening their homes, you know, letting letting people into their lives, blessing those who persecute you, emphasizing and being compassionate, excuse me, empathizing and being compassionate, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. Uh, uh, Someone who has uh, a a very uh, uh, humility that uh, brings about unity, harmony, uh, not repaying evil for evil, living peaceably with all, demonstrating confidence in God as just, and showing kindness to those who oppose us. Now, I don't have time, but just to sort of mention those things briefly, I would encourage you this afternoon or this week, to read over that list, okay? Because this is, this is the evidence that God shows in the life of his children. Of course, we know that comes through sanctification. It comes over time. But this is the things we should expect from a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I, I want you to encourage, because this passage really describes it. It's, it's, it's rich, actually, in describing the nature and the character and the activity of faith that overcomes in the life of a biblical disciple. But but I want you to understand that as you read these verses, you'll realize that Paul's not just throwing out a few ethical standards and, and saying, hey, go live this way, guys. Okay? This is not an ethical system that is practical or obtainable by anyone. Unless they have been transformed by God's grace and the Holy Spirit is at work in them. That's where our hope is, brothers and sisters. Not in our abilities to go do this better, but in looking to Him to bring these things about in us. And so when the Apostle Paul calls on you to do these things, bear in mind that he himself understands that it is only God's grace that's operative in us that enables us to live this way. And these are sort of rough divisions, but in verses 3 through 16, Paul talks about our relationship with believers and how we are to... To treat one another. But then in verse 17, he turns his attention on how we ought to relate to those who are unbelievers. And specifically, those who are looking to do us harm. Those who are looking to do evil towards us. And I want us to to close by looking at a third point. The victory of an overcoming faith. The victory of an overcoming faith. Not only is it evidence, but there is a sense of, of, of victory. We've looked at the source, we've looked at the evidence, now looked at the victory. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it's important to understand that as Paul is categorizing the opposition that he's talking about here, that he is categorizing this as evil. Not just you know, unpleasant, not just suffering, not just sort of bad kids. But we're talking outright, outright evil, okay? When people are evil and wicked uh, against us, and, and when we as Christians encounter such evil, we must not become disheartened or discouraged or derailed by the evil, but must stand in the face of evil, pursuing Christ and His purpose. Look, if you would, to Second Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, chapter two, verse twenty-four and twenty-five. You know. Paul is not, uh, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, And the Lord's servant, this is sort of, he's describing the the posture, the attitude of a servant of the Lord. He goes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know, there's a certain posture that we are to have. And, And Paul is talking to the church at Rome about this as well. Look back at verse 17 and then just sort of let your eyes sort of, in Romans uh, 12, 17, let your eyes just sort of fall down on verses 19 and 20. And and you'll see here that Paul is giving us a restraint against our natural inclination to retaliate, right? You know, if if someone were to punch you in the nose, what's going to happen? Well, you know, some of us might react a little bit differently, but for the most part, I think you would just probably have somebody, you just begin to clench your fist, like you're thinking, okay, I just want to punch this person in the nose. And so your blood sort of rushes to your head, and you're just trying to think what you could do to retaliate because they they punched you. you know. And unfortunately, that is the natural instinct of fallen human nature. But Paul is offering to a Christian here an exhortation of restraint to this instinct of retaliation. And he's saying to us that in our personal relationship with the world, he wants us to reject the inclination to revenge. And he wants us instead to not only not pay somebody back, but he wants us to show kindness to them. And, and Paul's language is very emphatic. Uh, he uses a particular form that makes it clear that he's saying that Christians should repay evil with absolutely no one at all. And instead... He wants us to do the very opposite because we're not to take upon ourselves the right to carry out vengeance for injustice done Uh, that is a right which god holds for the state actually if you look at romans 13 he talks about that how the state bears the sword and so through the the justice system with the police the military you know depending if it's a local or international incident or whatever that's where justice is is to happen. Now, with regard to our personal relationship, we're not to take on the spirit of revenge. And, and he tells us why. Look at verse 19. Um, because, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying, Don't worry about justice. And there are times when those... Uh, those institutions that God has set up, whether that be you know our justice system, whether it be the police or the military or whoever it might be, they may not act justly and so justice actually may not be done but God says I'll handle it. He says, I'll handle it better than you were. I'll handle it with more justice than you would. It's his character he will repay. Which means that justice may not come here upon this earth. But one day, justice will come. Because of that, the Christian then can rest in the deliverance of justice that God will bring. That that hope, that promise will be kept. And we're not only to refrain from revenge, um, as we saw in verse 19. But in verse 20, we're even to do acts of kindness towards those who have offended us. And, and as we do these acts of kindness, it doesn't mean that we just do that in our head, that if someone offends us, if somebody persecutes us, if somebody does evil against us, that we just say, oh, I forgive you. But he actually says that this, the, these acts of kindness are to be tangible. They're to be seen. Uh, if my hun- enemy is hungry, I am to feed him. Thirsty, I am to give him drink. So I am to tangibly minister to that person in need. And as we do, it says that we can bring conviction upon them. Now, that conviction, or excuse me, we will bring conviction upon them. But that conviction can go one of two ways. Okay, Sometimes when the sinner is convicted, he responds with an obstinate hatred that's even more intense than the initial evil that is shown, some people become hardened, you know, as they are convicted, but at other times God grants them repentance. Look back, if you would, to um, to that Timothy passage. Okay, to 2 Timothy two twenty-four, and I want to read the rest of that passage. Second Timothy two twenty-four. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, that's our goal. Our goal is to glorify God in the way that we act. But it's also in hopes that that person might become a believer. We talked about that in Sunday school with, the, with our kids. Uh, and as we watched Richard Wurmbrand and how he was in prison and how he was praying for the guards because his hope is, is that they might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I heard of the story of, of a man, I'll, I'll call him Mr. B for... Uh, Uh, Just for the sake of illustration, Mr. B had been a communist state prosecutor during the the Russian-occupied Romania. And uh, he actually fell out of graces with his own party, believe it or not. And so he was imprisoned by his own comrades, even though he had prosecuted so many Christians uh, as a state prosecutor. And so he was put in prison where they got very little food, very hardly enough to sustain themselves. But then he was eventually transferred to a mine. So he got a little bit more food Because, you know, they were doing hard, intense labor. And so they gave those prisoners just a little bit more food. But one day he was, Mr. B was coming back to the prison. And he was at the gate. And the stranger walks up to him and gives him some food. And so uh, Mr. B sat down to to eat the food. And the stranger sat down with him. And uh, Mr. B looked at the stranger and he said, So, he said, "Uh, how long are you sentenced for in here? He said, 20 years. He said, really? What for? And he said, well, he said, uh, I, uh, I gave a pastor who was a fugitive some food. Gave him some bread. And so I got 20 years. And And Mr. B looked at him and said, who gave you such a punishment for a kind deed like that? And he said, well, actually, he said, you were the state prosecutor at my trial. And he said, you're the one that got that sentence for me. He said, but I'm a Christian. And he said, I want you to know that I forgive you. And I don't hold that against you. And as Christ has taught us, I would like to give you this bread to show that I have forgiven you. You know, Paul is saying that in our personal relationship with the world... The cycle of evil can only be broken by the goodness and the grace of God. And you see, Paul doesn't intend that we should be defeated in this life by the forces of evil that we encounter. But if we are to do battle, we can't fight fire with fire. I know sometimes, kids, you hear that illustration, got to fight fire with fire. But that's not true for believers that are being persecuted. Our response is to be unworldly and otherworldly it is actually to be a response that reflects our Savior and what He had done when He suffered upon this earth. And the only thing that would overcome such evil is the grace and the mercy of God. So this morning, as as you hear these words from Romans 12, I know it's a very familiar passage, but I want you to take to heart and to ask yourself and to consider, is the faith that I have an overcoming faith? Am I trusting in the Lord? For those of you who are abiding in Christ, you are putting your hope in Him, that we can have confidence that our faith will be an overcoming faith as we trust the one who has suffered so and sown such love. But also, I think, as we hear these words this morning, I want you to consider your brothers and sisters around the world who are going through these things even now that they are suffering in their faith. And they may not be in prison. They may not be on the execution block. They might. They may just be hounded by the authorities. They may just be prevented from gathering as a church. One of the things we talked about in Sunday school, kids, right? Was just how their churches, there was only like a half a dozen people in their church because they couldn't have big crowds because the officials would see them. And it may be... That kind of pressure that's being put upon them not to talk about Jesus. But pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for them that they would stand firm. Pray that they would not retaliate. Pray that they would show kindness and that the love of Christ may continue to be proclaimed around the world. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we consider these things this morning. Oh Lord, our God, we, we thank you for your word this morning. And, uh, Lord, as we hear these things, especially as we read these these lists of characteristics of, of those who are in Christ, um, we may be, uh, actually, we may feel like we fall very short of that and incapable of, of living this way. But, Lord, we know that we have hope in Jesus Christ, that the things that you share are the promises that we can rest in We pray for your grace to continue to be at work in the hearts of your people today. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to be genuine in our love. Lord, help us not to repay evil for evil. Even in the small things that we encounter in our lives today, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be moved to compassion and kindness towards others, even as they are ugly and nasty, as we would say today, toxic towards us. Lord, may we show the love of Jesus Christ. Work in us, O God. Strengthen your people. We also pray, Lord, for those that may not know you, that you would please not let them rest until they bow their knee to your glorious mercies and and understand and and see the wonderful salvation that you are are giving to them. Please work in their hearts, O God, that they might know you. We just thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your glorious name. Father, we also pray for your church around the world, for our brothers and sisters. Lord, there may be those who have suffered. We know that many have suffered much of their lives, and they may be tempted to lose heart. I know even when Afghanistan, as, as the persecution was so intense, as the military, American military was pulling out, there were Christians crying out, please, please pray for us that we would stand firm. So we do pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, oh God. Lord, that we would stand beside them one day uh, worshiping and praising you for all eternity. We thank you, God, and pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen.